Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Striding, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. The Chagos Archipelago, a group of small tropical islands in the Indian Ocean, has become increasingly important in the international relations of the Indo-Pacific. There have been a spate of recent rulings in the United Nations and at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, otherwise known as ITLOS, that have cast doubt on the validity of the United Kingdom's claimed sovereignty over the islands. International advocacy groups, lawyers and even strategists have urged the UK to end its unlawful occupation, presenting interesting dilemmas for the UK, the United States and its allies that claim to support the rules-based order. Here with me to discuss this important issue is Nalanthi Samaranaika. Nalathi is the Director of the Strategy and Policy Analysis Program at the Centre of Naval Analysis in Washington, D.C. And she's joining us today, or tonight rather, from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Nalathi. It is terrific to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Beck. It's great to be here. So let's get into the questions. This is really actually a very complex and layered set of disputes. There are self-determination and sovereignty issues that involve the United Kingdom, Mauritius, who also claim sovereignty of the Chagos Islands, and the Chagossian people, so a nation of original inhabitants of the islands. Then on top of that, there are international law of the sea issues around maritime boundaries, marine protection area that the UK has tried to establish, uh, which have been subject to international court and tribunal rulings. And then to add even more complexity, there's a reason why this has become an issue for the United States. There is also a military base on one of the islands, uh, Diego Garcia, a US military base. So the Chagos Islands also has strategic significance, especially as the Indian Ocean presents uh, itself as a site of emerging strategic competition. So Nalanthia, it's great to have you here to try and unpack all of this complexity. So let's start with the issue of self-determination and sovereignty. Who owns the Chagos Islands and why is this an issue? Well, thanks, Beck. Uh, as you noted, it, it's an incredibly complex topic. The question of who owns the Chagos, that's exactly what's being contested right now. The UK, it claims sovereignty over the Chagos, and it, it really dates its claim back to the 1800s. But Mauritius has been on a, a big winning streak in terms of international legal forums and international diplomatic forums. It's really got the momentum behind it. But then stepping outside of nation states like the UK and Mauritius, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the Chagossian people. That's another level of, of the, the social dimension to this issue and really gets back to the eviction of Chagossians when the British Indian Ocean Territory was being created and the eviction due to the, the creation of the base. A lot of what has been driving Mauritius 
and its campaign against the UK has really been the that social element of the Chagossians who were actually evicted and then their descendants, the next generation of Chagossians who, who are abroad also. So there's a lot of different layers to this complex issue, as you note. Well, yeah, we might get to the second part that I mentioned there, the fact that this also involves maritime disputes and the latest court ruling uh, which gained international attention actually comes out of ITLOS and it is really about a maritime boundary dispute. And this is interesting in itself because UNCLOS or the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea isn't supposed to decide sovereignty disputes. It really relates to maritime disputes over issues such as, you know, where should an exclusive economic zone boundary lie or who has sovereign rights in particular maritime areas. So can you take us through this most recent ruling and what is its significance to the international status of Chagos? That's a really good question. I know at some point you'll probably want to talk about the International Court of Justice advisory opinion from 2019, but you're right. The most recent decision, it's just adding up yet another notch to Mauritius's string of victories. Essentially, it's it's about a, a bilateral maritime dispute between Maldives and Mauritius. But because of the UK's claim on the Chagos, it, it has significant implications for the Chagos dispute. It's a really complex read. It's a long read. And I, I'm certainly no maritime lawyer, but the, the bottom line takeaway from the ITLOS special chamber decision is it really just helps advance Mauritius's interests in Chagos. Essentially, the special chamber determined that it has jurisdiction on this issue between Maldives and Mauritius. There was sort of echoes of the UK's arguments before this about the issue of when an international legal forum has jurisdiction or not to adjudicate a dispute. So it was interesting to see that the special chamber, it says it does indeed have jurisdiction to adjudicate the delimitation of the maritime boundary between Maldives and Mauritius. But I think most important Importantly, the special chamber of ITLOS, it actually invoked the 2019 International Court of Justice advisory opinion. As you know, the UK only emphasizes that or de-emphasizes that as being only an advisory opinion. But it was interesting to see that ITLOS, the special chamber, actually said that that ICJ opinion actually has legal effect they actually talked about you can infer sovereignty, Mauritius's sovereignty over Chagos from what the, the ICJ found in 2019. So I think from a Mauritius perspective, it lowest special chamber decision really, it couldn't have uh, gone better in terms of the outcome. We might get back to the International Court of Justice advisory opinion a little bit later, but I do want to take us back to that kind of third layer, uh, which is the issue of the military basing and the US presence on one of the islands, Diego Garcia. So is the military basing an important factor for why the UK is still trying to hold on to these territories? And what does it mean for the United States that there is this cloud cast over the validity of UK sovereignty? It's a good question. I think from a UK perspective, this is about overseas territory. There's been this discussion in Britain about global Britain, that assertion of British influence and presence all around the world, not just in the Atlantic. 
having that territory makes it an extra regional power. It's a global power with territories around the world, but this gives it a, a firm footing in the Indian Ocean. It has access to institutions like the Indian Ocean Naval Symposium, the Indian Ocean Rim Association. So I think it's really hard for countries to give up territory uh, willingly, <laughs> but definitely from U.S. perspectives, it's really about the military base there, which is just critical for U.S. military operations. And so can I just confirm on that issue? I mean, from what I've read, it seems like Mauritius, even if it did achieve sovereignty over the Chagos Islands, would probably be willing to continue that military basing relationship anyway. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, actually, at CNA, we held an event several months ago where the Mauritius ambassador to the UN actually made a, a public uh, announcement. He talked about how Mauritius would be open to giving the US a, a 99-year lease, essentially, to the base. That is within the realm of the possible, at least in terms of bilateral Mauritius U.S. ties. But as you note, the the U.K. essentially permits the U.S. access to the base at present. And and the U.S. has an agreement with the U.K. that a few years ago was extended through 2036. I want to zoom out for a moment here. I mean, your expertise and the things that you've sort of written on recently is really relating to the Indian Ocean region and particularly looking at small states. And there are a lot of sort of small maritime states in this area. So the Indian Ocean, as I mentioned in the introduction, it does seem to be becoming increasingly important in terms of strategy or in terms of international relations. So what do you see as the implications of this sovereignty dispute over the Chagos Island? Islands in terms of the security dynamics for the Indian Ocean region? Well, I think from at least a U.S. perspective, uh, just having that base, it's, it's really located in the center of the Indian Ocean. Really, it's just critical for its location and its access to support military operations westward to the Middle East, going back really to the past 20 years of continual military operations that support from Diego Garcia has been important. You can even take it back 30 years to the Gulf War. So that's really for westward operations, but also eastward to the Pacific, especially in Washington. There's been this discussion about great power competition now under the new Biden administration. Some are are talking about it as uh, strategic competition, but, but either way that that competition with China, that's not going away. So really having that location of the, the base in Diego Garcia is really just critical for supporting operations both westward and eastward. These events are showing just with Mauritius racking up these victories, it's definitely has implications for U.S. military basing interests and really just global issues, just given how present the U.S. is in the region. So, I mean, states like the United States, United Kingdom and Australia often employ the use of the term rules-based order, yet the UK's sort of refusal to back down and this idea, as you were saying, that the International Court of Justice advisory opinion was only an opinion, as well as the sort of reticence of the US to really get involved in the dispute appears to be a bit of a, a double standard or it undermines that narrative. And I guess from my perspective, having done a fair bit of work on the discourse or the narrative of the rules-based order, 
for some of these states, it's not just about rules, it's about power. Uh, you know, this idea that might does not equal right. It's really a proxy term for trying to describe the China threat in terms of regional order and the need to protect the small states from the strong. So how can small states like Mauritius or how can people like the Chagossians be protected if these so-called rules-based order preservationist states are not prepared to abide by the rules-based order themselves. Isn't it hypocritical? There's a lot to unpack there, <laughs> Beck. It's a, a, a really, it's, as you rightly mentioned, the small states. That's just a, a fascinating dimension to this. And just essentially Mauritius as a small state, how it's been able to use international legal forums, international diplomatic forums to essentially augment its power, just given the fact it is a small state and has been so successful in these forums. But then in terms of what's actually taking place on the ground, the UK is still very much present. The control of the territory. I mean, it's it's interesting because you see effects of the International Court of Justice, the advisory opinion, the UN world map, no more British Indian Ocean territory. You look at Chagos, it now has Mauritius control. There's been some meaningful change, but in terms of what's actually on the ground, nothing. It speaks to the power, I think, of, of military presence over international law, international diplomacy. It's very interesting, the advisory opinion, it, it talked about how the UK needed to leave Chagos as rapidly as possible. The UN General Assembly resolution a few months later gave the UK like a six-month deadline. But what actually changes? Nothing. So there's definitely a, a tension there. I'm going to ask you to look into the crystal ball for a moment before I get into audience questions. But we're seeing now accumulation of pressure. I'm wondering whether you feel optimistic that things might change in the future. I think it's difficult, at least from a US perspective, because this era of great power competition, strategic competition, so much really is about highlighting what China or Russia is doing that is inconsistent with certain values and principles. I think from a US perspective, just having access to that base is so critical. Like you talked about the rules-based order, it, it makes that emphasis a little bit harder, uh, just given the strategic realities and what looks to be on the horizon in terms of China, especially. So it's uh, it's very complex, I think, from a, a U.S. perspective, at least so far from what I've observed is the U.S. really just kind of reflexively supporting one of its closest allies, the UK. There's always this discussion about a, a special relationship between the US and the UK. Five Eyes partners, very close on intelligence sharing. The US has really just backed the UK, you know, 100%. But I do wonder, though, just as Mauritius is racking up these victories and 15 years will just fly by like that. I do wonder if, if US policymakers may come to a determination where they, they need to weigh essentially Right now, it seems alliance management has the priority, but just given the critical nature of that base, whether U.S. national interest, does that at some point take a higher priority and maybe the U.S. wants to work directly with Mauritius or, or maybe come to some sort of a trilateral determination, essentially a move away from the status quo? 
it's a hard decision, at least from, from a U.S. perspective. But, you know, I think by having conversations like this, at least maybe just elevating the discussion, maybe there'll be a, a bit more, I don't know, concerted approach to at least identifying what those priorities are and, and just making it clear. And I guess uh, in other examples, such as the Timor Sea example between Australia and Timor-Leste, you're never always sure what it is that's going to be that does create change when the bigger power in the dispute does ultimately uh, reflect on their national interests and decide that actually they need to change the way that they're going about engaging with the state in a bilateral dispute. And that's really important, I think, in terms of making sure that issues in public diplomacy are sort of kept on the agenda and highlighted in international discourses. There is something to be said for essentially the US or the UK or one of these big powers saying, hey, this decision in international law did not quite go our way, but we're going to abide by it due to the the primacy and priority of maintaining those rules on international law and international diplomacy. And I think India did that well in Mm. its boundary dispute with Bangladesh. It certainly didn't want to be dragged to what was it, the permanent court of arbitration by Bangladesh, you know, over their dispute in the Bay of Bengal. But I mean, it's a complex decision. You could argue some parts went India's way, but on balance, it, it went more Bangladesh's way. And But, you know, India abided by it. There's a powerful example there in terms of abiding by a decision, not minimizing it, because you want to show just essentially the, the primacy of those, those international legal institutions. And I think it does, in the long run, serves to enhance the credibility of some of those countries, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're they're trying to draw the contrast with China, Russia, and their models of development and existence. Exactly. And both India and Australia did use those examples as a way of demonstrating their own commitment to the rules-based order, as you point out. But I might turn to some audience questions. Now, I have a couple of questions that are pre-prepared that have come to us from people in the United Kingdom. But it's been really great to get some questions and comments from people from the Chagossian nation. So the first comment is from Claudette, who says that the UK, US and Mauritius are trying to have the sovereignty of Chagos, but they forget the people who are living in a bad condition in Mauritius and in the UK for 52 years. They say our condition is not changing and we are afraid for our future with the sovereignty of Chagos. Don't forget the voice of the Chagos people. We are not well, we are suffering and living in extreme conditions of poverty. What is our right on Chagos? And I might follow up with a second question for you to respond to, Nalanthi, from David. The sovereignty dispute cannot be complete if only some of the stakeholders are allowed a voice. The priority of such a dispute seems more and more like an exercise to evade or ignore the future, the voice of the uprooted inhabitants of these islands, the Chagossians. They have been spectators for more than 50 years now to such debate. Until the point of view of the Chagossians are heard and taken into serious account, isn't the sovereignty dispute similar to the colonial oppression which Mauritius is trying to end? A different name to the same end result, a means to an end. Both of these comments and questions get to the point that when we talk about states and we talk about great power competition, the UK, the US, Mauritius, they have a voice. The Maldives can take Mauritius to, <laughs> you know, it lost. But it's actually very 
different if you're a nation that doesn't have that kind of international status. So I'm wondering whether you can respond to those questions and comments. That's a very important point is I think a lot of our discussion as analysts, we, we talk about strategy and policies and interactions between nation states, but really seeing, I think as we've heard in those questions, essentially the human rights concerns and the concerns of populations, we see the intersection of those human rights interests with strategy. So a lot of us who are defense and security analysts can't forget about the social dimension and the human rights dimensions. Yeah, I think there are some NGOs that have certainly been taking on some of the Chagossian interests with regard to the right of return and interests for descendants of the, the original Chagossians who were evicted. And then also in the, the ICJ opinion, it talked about how Mauritius was not able to complete its process of decolonization. It gets exactly to, to that process and, and what, what should have taken place. So your second question really uh, touches on exactly the, the language in that decision by the ICJ. I'm hoping to get some of our audience members to ask their question live. The first question is from David Vine. Hi. Thank you, David. Would you like to ask your question? Sure. I thought the first two questions and comments were fantastic. So building off them, I just wondered if this story is really all that complex. Um, I wonder if this is just ongoing colonialism and colonial behavior on the part of the UK and the US. And as a result, the Chagossians are still living in exile. And Mauritius has no access to islands that are clearly rightfully theirs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it depends where you sit. You know, if you're Chagossian, there's a clear path to return. Mauritius has made clear that, at least under their offer for the 99-year the lease, the Chagossians would not even be repatriated to Diego Garcia itself, but to uh, islands like Paris Banos and Solomon Islands. You know, I'm an analyst, so the situation depends on where you're sitting. If you're in London and you've got the global Britain pressure and or you're a U.S. policymaker and you're thinking about military operations, it depends on where you're sitting. I'd be curious uh, to hear your thoughts and where you're sitting. I, I think what was so important about the first comment was the point that the Chagossians should, and their experiences and their perspective should be the first that we pay attention to. Um, they've, they're the ones who have suffered throughout this. And I don't see why the interests of US government officials or US analysts should be important at all. Uh, the argument that a base in the middle of the Indian Ocean is important to protecting the United States in any way, where US borders are thousands of miles away, seems a, a fanciful argument. And more importantly, the Chagossians' lives have been terribly damaged for more than half a century. And they and their ancestors are the ones who have a right to these islands, um, as well as I think the people of Mauritius. I don't see why we should pay the interests of US and UK government officials much mind at all. 
obviously you clearly disagree with the, the US and UK position, but they matter at least in terms of the ICJ, Mauritius's fight against the UK. But Mauritius has been very successful and has really been driving a lot of change. And I think it's also worth noting that even the Mauritius government, though, wasn't necessarily always on the same page with the Chagossians. Certainly the pressure of the Chagossians had put more emphasis, more pressure on the government in Mauritius. And Mauritius has definitely been incentivized to act more and take more of an active role in it. This is what you get, I think, with nation states and populations mm. in those states. This is the democratic process. This is what should take place. Mm. Yeah, we might get back to a question about the US and its uh, foothold in the Indian Ocean. So I might invite David Simon. Here he is. Hi, David. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me on. So first of all, I am a Shagoshian, descendant of a Shagoshian. So my questions obviously were coming from this angle. And as you, you rightly pointed out, it depends on where you sit when you're asking these questions. There is another island belonging to Mauritius, just a couple of nautical miles west of Diego Garcia called Akalega Island, which is now a very strong hold of Indian position. There might be rumours, and we always have to base ourselves on rumours before it obviously comes to light. But isn't that now another strong reason for the American now to say, we will stay put, we will not have any local inhabitants close to these islands, there is a strong threat, and that's again another 50, 60, 70, 100 years, where these inhabitants are now spectators again, depending on military decisions. That's a great question, David. So I was able to ask the Mauritius ambassador at, at one of his uh, public events about Agalega. He said that essentially Mauritius asked India to build this base. There's a small population there and it, it's been hard to deliver supplies to them in emergencies. Essentially, India is building a, a jetty there uh, and a landing strip. And he said, at least at the time, this was maybe mid last year, that the jetty was almost ready. He said that some of the first ships were able to dock closer. It makes it a little bit easier in terms of being able to get supplies from the Coast Guard. From Mauritius's perspective, it doesn't see it as an Indian base. They asked India to support them with their Coast Guard base. That's a little bit of a difference. Thank you, David. Look, we've got a few questions just rolling back to the issue of the rules-based order and about whether the criticism of states around China's activities in the South China Sea is undermined by their own activities or responses to the legal rulings on Chagos Islands. But I might actually get Sam Bashfield on the line to ask his question. Yep. Hi. Hi, Nalanthi. Hi, Beck. Thanks so much for the talk. Just on that topic of Agalega, yeah, it is it is quite interesting, and I, I do wonder whether I believe the spin of the Mauritian government in inviting India, and whether it is you know at the initiative of of India, and certainly yeah, some of those satellite imagery. You know, when they talk about a jetty in Australia, we think of a jetty as quite a small structure, but they're actually you know gigantic. What's going up in Agalega at the moment? But the question I had, I'll just read it out. So while perpetuating the British Indian Ocean territory was clearly in contravention of the rules-based order. Some would say China's assertive behaviour in the Indian Ocean seems to justify retaining the base. So as a bit of a question, you know, do you think that um, this is an example of the US and allies breaking the rules-based order in a sense to uphold the rules-based order? I think it's probably a less than ideal outcome where you have some of the same arguments being used by the UK kind of 
sound reminiscent of China's arguments in the permanent court of arbitration, like the issues of uh, jurisdiction and not having the consent for uh, these international bodies to rule. Some would argue that the ends justify the means. I think that's a difficult case to make, uh, at least in terms of the great power competition dynamic or strategy where effectively these Western countries are trying to point out the, the validity of their political, economic, social model, and really trying to draw contrast with China and point out Xinjiang or Hong Kong or really try to draw those contrasts where I think, you know, it comes back to what back you were talking about small states that effectively you have these large countries that have certain prerogatives and just will carry them out on the side or the, the international norms and institutions that have been created. It certainly raises the issue of, I think, at least from a U.S. perspective, to actually just bring these issues to the fore and clarify what is the greater priority. Because it's going to be increasingly complex to maintain the primacy of the U.S. model when there is that apparent tension in terms of that view and approach to international law that can sound reminiscent of, of China. Yeah, and I think it also gets back to the issue of what the rules-based order is and what people mean when they say the rules-based order, because often it's not actually about the rules or about international law. It's about power and it's about China. And these states are taking what I've termed in some of my research, exceptionalist approaches to the rules-based order. China needs to abide by the rules-based order, but the rest of us, well, we get to define it. And there's sort of issues with what we mean by it. But I will invite Sabrina Jean, if you're there, to maybe provide a question to Nalanti. Good evening. I'm Sabrina Jean. I'm the chair of the Chagas Refugees Group. You have been talking about US, UK and Mauritius, about the sovereignty and also about the military base. Our main concern is not who will control the territory. Our concern is the one who will respect the fundamental rights of the Chagossian community, and also who has been denied our return for many years. My second question is, we do not see anyone who can protest the ICG decision. You can need to respect the ICG and the International Tribunal of Law of the Sea and start to respect institutions who form part such as UN. And also, my last question will be, no one can be prevented to live on their birthplace. How could others can live and stay for a longer period, but why Chagossian can't? Why they can allow Chagossian to go on a visit, but not to be settled? Thank you, Sabrina. Uh, Nalanthi, did you have a response for that? Really excellent points. I'm flashing back to the Mauritius ambassador. In his remarks at our event, he was talking about resettlement of Chagossians to Paros Banos and the Solomon Islands. Uh, So it was interesting to hear the Mauritius position essentially talk about a direct connection to the U.S. in terms of a, an alternate arrangement, did not allow the return of Chagossians to Diego Garcia, the island itself. That was kind of interesting and maybe suggests a potential point of departure between uh, some Chagossians and Mauritius. Your point about the ICJ is well taken. Just a few months after the ICJ issued the advisory opinion, the UN General Assembly 
had a resolution where a striking minority of countries disagreed with it. So you basically have the vast international community endorsing the ICJ opinion, which talked about the improper decolonization and who's on the, the other end. It's you know the UK, obviously, the US, Australia, and Maldives, interestingly. I mean, this, this gets back to power. I think those three Five Eyes countries uh, make a lot of sense, but Maldives, because it has this dispute with Mauritius. Uh, so it, it was very interesting to see Maldives actually in that group. Very surprising for a small state. It is a really complex and layered set of issues. And I think you've done an absolutely tremendous job at helping to unpack those layers and to, as you said, cover a full gamut of international relations, levels of analyses. And there's still so much work, I think, uh, left to be done in analysing some of these issues. So thank you again for your time. Thanks, Beth. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter. Nalanthi is at Nalanthi S, at Beck Strading, and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading and thank you for listening. Thank you.